Well, let's jump into it. Uh, we got a somewhat beefy news section for this newsletter. Um, the first item we covered last week, and we get into a bit of detail this week, which is the block parsing bug that w- was affecting um, BTCD and LND nodes. And we expanded a little bit on what happened there. Um, so there was a a large, a very large um, taproot transaction with a witness that had almost a thousand signatures. I think it was something like 998 of a 999 uh, multi-sig. And uh, that the size of that witness caused uh, BTCD and LND to not be able to, to process that block uh, correctly. And I, my understanding is the reason for that is there, there was actually a check that remained uh, from a previous SegWit policy rule that that limited the the witness size and this large transaction exceeded that and while there were some tests in their code base that that passed there there was some areas of the code and I think it was like on the on the networking side um, that 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 check did not pass um, there, there wasn't a test around that particular section of the code base so when this large witness came in, it essentially failed at the at the network level, which caused all sorts of chaos that you've probably seen on Twitter for the last week or so um, about what happened there. Um, so there's a fix, as we talked about in the announcements section. Make sure you're you're updated. Um, and I think there was a little bit of discussion about whether there should be limits for the taproot witness size or not. And Greg, I know you kind of opined on that discussion. Um, do you, do you want to give your take on the, the pros and cons of, of having a limit and what your take is there? Yeah, so I was being a little gentle and mild on my email, uh, just pointing out that you'll burn people's funds as a kind of a showstopper, right, so we can stop talking about it. But the whole point of taproot with the witness uh, script being unbounded size is that essentially the validation cost is proportional to how big the witness is itself. So there's no real need to make extra like limits on this kind of uh, on this bucket of, of resources that we pay for fees, right? Um, so in previous versions of script, you'd have things like pre-segwit, you have quadratic hashing, meaning if you have a lot of inputs, it's actually more expensive to validate than the linear cost you're paying. But that went away with SegWit, and then there's a few more updates where basically uh, you, you go down to one metric, right? It's just the size. And this size could be paid for using fees, uh, right? This, this size is proportional to how big the block can be directly, directly proportional. So there's no real need for these extra buckets, in my opinion. And that was part of the design decision. It's very intentional how it was done. So... And, it, and I guess the the example of burned coins or, or lost funds would be if somebody had previously, let, let's say yeah. there was so, a few other so people if, who had done this already, so, right? Yeah, but by log, logical deduction, Barack apparently put money in the script, right? And so if we if somebody has put money in a, in a script that's considered very large or too large, then we decide, oh, that's illegal, it's too big, then you, you burn their coins, right? So Barack's money would have been burned. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and and like you said, that's that's probably a well, that's definitely a showstopper to 
re-adding in limits. Um, so I guess that that's a moot point, although someone did bring that up as a potential consideration. Uh, that's probably good on the BTC debug. Um, rolling into the next news item from newsletter 222. Um, actually, I realized that in, in waiting for merch, we didn't actually go through introductions, so we can do that really quickly. Uh, Mike Schmidt, contributor to Bitcoin Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund open source Bitcoin developers. Greg, you've already been speaking a bit. You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Greg or Instagibbs. I do, I've done various wallet-like systems uh, and currently I'm working on Core Lightning. John, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is John Light. I'm here today to discuss a report that I published as part of my participation in the Human Rights Foundation's ZK Rollup uh, Research Fellowship. Um, I published a report about how we can build validity rollups, uh, also known as ZK rollups, uh, on top of Bitcoin. And uh, by day, I work on a protocol called Zero as part of the sovereign community, amongst other projects there. But Zero is my main focus right now. Great. Well, th thank you, too, for, for joining this week. Um, the next news item in our newsletter for 222 is transaction replacement option. And this references a couple news items that we've discussed previously about Bitcoin Core merging support for um, a configuration option for mempool full RBF. Um, and maybe it makes sense to just prime the discussion uh, slightly with there's two techniques for increasing fees. Um, there's child pays for parent fee bumping, and then there's replace by fee fee bumping. And so child pays for parent would be as if I have a transaction that I'm interested in having confirmed and it's sitting in the mempool, let's say, and I would like to get that confirmed quicker. Um, maybe fees went up or maybe I underestimated the fees and I, I really need it confirmed. I can create a child transaction that spends that uh, outputs from that transaction and effectively overpay on that child transaction so that I can get my parent transaction confirmed together since miners would be interested in that juicy child high fee rate. Um, what we're talking about here is the other technique, which is replaced by fee, fee bumping. And there's been a lot of discussion um, on the mailing list and there's been a lot of PRs um, recently around this, this mempool full RBF configuration option being one of them. Um, I think it would make sense maybe uh, Instagibs if you could kind of maybe give, give an overview of with, within this RBF world, what's been happening, what's mempool full RBF, the configuration option, and we can maybe get into some of the concerns that uh, Bitcoin services have about that. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of context here, which makes it difficult, but I can talk about the specific things being proposed. So essentially, um, previously for replaced by fee, uh, transactions would had to explicitly opt into this behavior. So you set your uh, n-sequence bytes, a part of your input, to say, hey, I might replace this in the future. And nodes today, I think all nodes, uh, honor, this, honor this flag and will do a replacement. Um, so there's some arguments about, so ignoring the context of the arguments, the, the current 
PRs that are out there, suggested changes are basically saying, hey, in a world we think that replacement should be based on incentives, right? So someone's paying more fees for this version of the transaction, replace it because miners will tend to pick up these things, game theoretically anyways. Um, so there's a, while there's widespread uh, protocol support for this, there's arguments about or discussions about how to exactly to roll this out in a safe manner and a fair manner for those who are still relying on zero confirmation uh, security protocols. Um, so there's, if you look at the newsletter, there's probably, I think, two open PRs now. And the kind of, there's two parts, right? Is that in Bitcoin Core 24.0, there's a, an argument that you can set on your node, mempool full RBF, which will ignore the flag and simply replace. Uh, it will ignore the flag in the transaction and replace it if the fees look better in a certain way, um, regardless of, of how it's signaling. And then the second piece is, do we want to delay this, right? So there's a mixture of, uh, do we want this feature for 24.0? Uh, and second would be, how do we want, if and how, do we want to flip this to be um, default true? Because in, in 24.0, this is default false, meaning users would have to go in and change this variable themselves. So the question is kind of like, time, if and when should we switch this to true? And if and when should this switch be in the software at all. And so there's kind of these competing uh, narratives and discussions, and it's kind of still being worked on. I'll, I'll cede the floor for questions, I guess. Um, I have potentially a, a, maybe a naive question on this topic, which is, um, so at, as things are today, you need to, your, your wallet software, if I'm creating a transaction, I need to either have the option to signal or maybe it's just signaling default behind the scenes and I maybe I don't have the option, but there is a required signaling involved. And, and I guess subsequently then I, depending on the wallet software, I can have features that would allow me then to adhere to BIP 125. And uh, if I adhere to all those, including certain requirements on how much I need to increase the fee rate, I can replace that transaction. Um, and, and in the future, we there's a potential future state that that seems to be inevitable would be the not requiring of the signaling. Now, I guess my question to you, Greg, would is if someone isn't signaling um, replacement, is it likely that they would replace? Yeah. So that's yeah. that's part of the context. So I'll, I'll go into that. Right. So what? Ignoring the game theoretic, you know, this is nicer for miners long-term. What, what's the actual argument from a wallet developer standpoint? So this would be things like, just a, the simplest case would be coin joins. So you have, you know, a group of people contributing their own inputs in a coin join protocol or coin join-like protocol. And so you don't actually control all these inputs, right? You control your own and no others. So the issue here is that your counterparty in a coin join could double spend their own input with something um, uneconomical, so it won't get mined. Uh, it'll just stick in the mempool, well, in their mempool, right? And maybe the miner's mempool. But on your side, you're trying to do a coin join. And even if the coin join signals replaced by fee opt-in, their double spend does not. So if, they, if they're well connected with miners, then basically they've jammed the coin join. And you know, technically speaking, you may never see this this pinning vector, right? You may you may never see this double spend because there is no the mempool. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I wasn't aware of that potential use case. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's why wallet developers care. You know, there's, there's people, there's no, uh, software people who care from a game theoretical perspective, but there's also like soft, the wallet developer people who care for these kind of reasons. It just complicates a lot of this and it makes denial of service easier. I have a question. So, Greg, you mentioned that there is debate about whether or not, or, or not this flat, uh, new flag gets into, or rather new setting on your node software gets into 24.0 or, or not, and when to enable it uh, as true. Um, and part of the reason might be um, just giving people more time to like adjust their services to this if they're relying on zero conf. Um, yep. how, how long has that, it has this uh, new node setting been a part of the discussion and are you aware of like engagement from industry in the, in the discussion? Yeah, so I mean, this has literally been, I don't know, a 10 year discussion or something. So it's hard to say like when it started. Um, this I guess like now there's like written code and yeah. So exactly, right. So people are saying, okay, um, maybe default true is too aggressive or something. Maybe we can get default false. And then you'd have to have like something like 10% of node operators turning it on or take, making very, you know, basically sibling the network, connecting to miners to really make a difference. So that was like the thought, right? And so this, this very small patch that included this flag um, was merged prior to 24.0, right? For the branch off from the master branch. And so that's why it's showing up in a release, right? And so what people did with like service uh, people then read these notes and said, oh no, right? This, this, we think this feature is dangerous. We need, you know, N months to, to fix things or whatever other metric. So that's kind of where the conversation went. Okay. Okay. So they, at least some folks have noticed and are uh, already raising the, the question. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And, and so there's debate, right? It's okay. It, it made its point. People are now aware that there's this intention. Should we disable this option for some window or is the, is disabling an option an anti-feature and too upsetting for, you know, users? There's a lot of like, questions here, right? I don't think there's any right answer per se, but um the discussion's ongoing and hopefully there's a resolution where people can, you know, we all get the things we want in the end, but we have to figure out how to get there. And I, I saw that there was a, a couple of proposals that, that would involve um, potentially changes in the 24.0 release. Yeah, so I can, AJ changes. is here. Anthony Towns is actually in, in the audience here, but he has a spying on us. He must spying, that's right. <laughs> uh, he, has a, he has a proposal which a mainnet turns off the flags. You can't, if you set it to something, it's invalid. Basically, mainnet, you can't set it. and Or it's not active until, like, let's say, six months in the future. I think the current one is six months. But the idea is delay it on mainnet and then switch it to default true at some time in the, in the future when people think it's enough heads up. So is it six months? Is it a year? This is the conversation happening right now on the mailing list with different merchants talking about what are their metrics that they think are appropriate. And then there's kind of, you know, a decision will have to be made one way or another for 24.0 and then for the future. Okay. So this is uh, still being discussed. Nothing has been determined yet, but there's a no. few different proposals. 
Okay, great. Uh, I see Merch has joined us. Merch, I sent you the co-host invite. Anything uh, else note noteworthy on this topic, Greg, you think, before we move on to... I mean, I think that gives you proper context. So we talked about a little bit about minor incentives. We talked about kind of what wallet devs want. And then, you know, the zero conf operators, they have their own concerns. And so I'd recommend reading, if, if you're interested reading, there's there's uh, Sergey from BitRefill and Dario from MoonWallet talking about their concerns. So I think it'd be better to do justice if you read their emails. I have a, a question, a subjective question for you, for you Greg. Um, if you could wave wave a magic wand on this all of this RBF stuff, what what would you have happen? If I was if I was a dictator, you mean? A dic- yeah, dictator. So if I was the dictator, I'd probably push back the window another six months. I'd take ages PR, push it back six months, and then just merge it, and then get yelled at by devs. Okay, that's fair. So what, one operator was asking for six months, and. It, you know, well, I guess what I'd wait, I'd wait for operators to tell me how long they need, like discrete timelines, right? So if someone says they need a year, I would just bump it back to kind of the, you know, an honest maximum of that range and then just merge. But not a dictator, so. Merch, I see you've joined us. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly for the audience who probably already knows who you are? Hi, I'm Merch, and time zones work differently than I thought this morning uh, before getting coffee with the wonderful uh, doggo that my cousin has, and uh, i uh, sorry for being late. <laughs> no, no problem. We, we've, we've kept it together. I don't think we've gone too far off the rails um, just yet. We're, we're, we are going through the newsletter sequentially, and we are about to roll into the, the validity roll-ups research from John Light who's here to help explain this mystical world that Bitcoiners only usually hear about in altcoin and in DeFi land. Um, so, uh, John, if you want to uh, step up to the plate, maybe one one place to start is, um, is, is what you've researched here, zero-knowledge proofs. Maybe you can give us a little context here on the motivation and, and what – Maybe some of uh, maybe the 101 for Bitcoiners on zero knowledge proofs. I've heard the example of you know Bitcoin signature proving you have knowledge of the private key being like the, the Bitcoiners like way of thinking about a zero knowledge proof. And maybe you just want to take take some of that and run with it. Sure. Thanks. So <clears throat> zero knowledge proofs were invented like computational zero knowledge proofs were invented back in the eighties. And it's basically a technique that allows you to prove the correctness of a statement without actually revealing anything about the answer. So like you're able to convince somebody else, uh, a a verifier, um, that, that, you know, the answer or like that, 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 that a statement is true without actually re- revealing like any, any details about why it's true. Um, and that's uh, quite powerful because the, the statement can be uh, really arbitrarily uh, complex in terms of like the, the, what exactly it is that you're proving true. Um, and 
there are also ways to develop uh, non-zero knowledge, computational proofs, which um, you might reveal some information about the, uh, uh, the, the statement you're making or, or the information backing the statement, but you, uh, it's still, it's still a very small amount of information relative to maybe the, the total size of the statement. And in, in, a, in a practical term, in, for, the, for the use case that we're talking about, validity rollups, what you're able to use this um, type of computational proof, uh, which is called a validity proof, uh, to do is to prove that a state transition on a different blockchain is correct according to the rules of that blockchain. Um, and you're able to prove that to Bitcoin full nodes um, without those Bitcoin full nodes actually having to um, replay any of the transactions that are happening on this other blockchain. And what that gives you in, uh, in terms of benefits, like the reason why you would want to do this uh, is twofold in the case of validity rollups. One is that you're able to um, link confirmations on the rollup to confirmations on Bitcoin. So if you're doing transactions in this other blockchain, which is called a rollup, um, once a, a rollup block is produced containing those transactions, um, the block producer then does a transaction on layer one saying, you know, this is a hash of this, the new state of the blockchain according to this block that I just produced built on top of all of the previous blocks that have ever been produced and confirmed on layer one. And and then produce a and then put a validity proof uh, on layer one that convinces layer one full nodes that indeed this hash of this state is 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 a correct transition from the previous known state. And once that transaction that state update transaction gets confirmed on layer one, um, the 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 rollup block has just as much finality as the layer one block itself. So this other blockchain, the rollup blockchain, is actually fully inheriting the double spend security guarantees of, of layer one um, by, by putting the hash of the state and the validity proof that proves the correct state transition into that layer one transaction in a layer one block. So that's one you like. Uh, one of the benefits of, of using the validity proof this way. The second benefit is that because you're able to prove that the state transitions are correct on this other blockchain, what you can actually do is you can develop a script on layer one such that you can deposit Bitcoin into this script and then it will be uh, locked there until you're ready to withdraw it. And once you lock Bitcoin in this, la uh, this script on layer one, the layer two rollup blockchain full nodes will see that some Bitcoin has been deposited to this script and then issue an equivalent amount of Bitcoin to maybe the same address or a different address that was specified in the deposit on layer one. And 
now the recipient of those Bitcoins can then do transactions within this other blockchain um, using the Bitcoin that they, they kind of transferred into this script on, on layer one. Um, so this kind of harkens back to this idea that's been floating around the Bitcoin community for a long time called sidechains, where you know, the idea is you have this so-called like bridge or two-way peg where you can move Bitcoins to another blockchain and back. And one of the problems that was kind of unsolved for many years um, since the first introduction of the sidechains idea is, okay, move, you can move Bitcoins into a, another blockchain. That's not too difficult because you can do SPV proofs or maybe that other blockchain can actually, like their full nodes can just look at the, the state of the layer one blockchain and they can see, okay, Bitcoins have come into this special script. I'm going to issue an equivalent amount of Bitcoins on this other chain. The, the, the real tricky bit is how do you get the Bitcoins back onto the main Bitcoin blockchain it, when you want to withdraw from this other blockchain? And this is, this is sometimes called a peg out. Um, and so um, the, the, the reason why this is a challenge is because like Bitcoin layer one full nodes don't know anything that's happening outside of the blockchain. Um, Bitcoin's scripting language is not really um, advanced enough to be able to say, even like verify an SPV proof from a different blockchain or something like that right now. Um, and so the way that this problem has been solved up until now is basically using some fancy form of multi-sig or even just like a centralized custodial bridge. So you give your Bitcoins to this trusted third party or trusted federation, and then they'll issue you some IOUs on a different blockchain. And then when you want to get the blockchains back or the Bitcoins back, you ask them, like, can you please send me the Bitcoins back on layer one? What validity rollups have introduced is this ability to have a totally trustless cryptographic bridge between Bitcoin and another, and another blockchain. So that when you move your Bitcoin over to this other blockchain, you, you always have the ability to exit and like with, with your coins that you own. And the reason is because of that validity proof, uh, in part because of the validity proof, also because um, some of the state of the blockchain or the state of the, this other blockchain is stored in layer one blocks for data availability. Um, but really it's the validity proof uh, that's a absolutely essential component here because the validity proof is proving that state transitions on this other blockchain are correct. I discussed, I explained that earlier. And now when a user wants, because, because the layer one full nodes are validating that the state transitions are correct, they can, they can confirm that withdrawals are correct as well. So when a user on the rollup who, or who has Bitcoins on the rollup wants to withdraw those Bitcoins back to layer one, they just submit a withdrawal transaction and either the rollup block producers are cooperative and they process the withdrawal transaction, include it in a block and then put it on layer one and the user can get their uh, Bitcoins back. Or in the uncooperative case, the user can submit a transaction directly on layer one along with a validity proof that shows like, hey, I own these Bitcoins in the current like last known state, a uh, valid state of this uh, other blockchain, I would like to withdraw those these Bitcoins to my layer one address. The layer full uh, layer one full nodes, when that 
withdrawal transaction gets included in a Bitcoin block, we'll just uh, verify the validity proof. Like they'll run it through their verifier software. And if it comes back true, then they will process the withdrawal and the user can get their Bitcoins out of the rollup. So that's how validity proofs are used in the rollup. And to summarize, like those benefits that you're getting from that uh, design are that this other blockchain, the rollup blockchain, is able to fully inherit the double spend security of the parent chain. Um, in this case, it's the layer one Bitcoin blockchain. And users who move their Bitcoins into this other blockchain have like cryptographic guarantee um, that they can get the Bitcoins out of this other blockchain and back onto the layer one Bitcoin blockchain. Excellent description. Um, thanks for walking us through that. I've heard you use the term, uh, I think you've used the term sidechain, but also roll up. And I know there's some discussion about that. Do you, I mean, do you, do you think of this as sidechain technology or is there an important distinction between um, what's commonly referred to as a sidechain and, and what you're talking about here other than the, the technical magic that you've mentioned? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So in some ways, these look very similar because it's a rollup is another blockchain that you can move your Bitcoins over to and back to Bitcoin. And like that, that sounds a lot like the sidechain idea. But I think one of the important features or like distinctions between these two different types of protocols is that a rollup puts its state like data about its state um, onto its parent chain. Like this is a design requirement for something to be considered a rollup. Whereas I, uh, I consider a side chain, a, a totally separate blockchain um, that it, it could have its own consensus mechanism. It could have its own throughput. It could have very big blocks or very small blocks. Um, it, it, it doesn't really matter like how the, this other blockchain is parameterized as long as it, you know, has this ability to move, um, some asset back and forth with another blockchain and maybe uses that asset as it's like native asset that you would use to, to pay for fees. So for example, liquid or rootstock are side chains that run today. And they don't put any of their like blockchain state data onto the bit, the main Bitcoin blockchain. They're not fully inheriting the double spend security of the layer one blockchain the way that the way that rollup does. So I think I think that those are kind of the main important distinctions, um, and that a rollup. Although it is a blockchain and it shares some characteristics with sidechains in that you can move Bitcoins over to them and move them back. Um, I think they're, they're different enough that they merit having their own category in the like ontology of blockchain-based protocols. So if I'm thinking about, um, if I'm an end user and I'm thinking about the end effect, I send my coins somewhere similar to a side chain, I, I get the features of something that like a side chain, maybe I can send in, you know, high throughput number of transactions or some such thing. Um, and then when I'm done doing whatever I'm doing on this side chain, I can get my coins back. And so in that regard, it's similar, 
but uh, it's different in that instead of, like I said in the liquid example, depositing into an address that's in essentially a giant multi-sig, um, I'm depositing into, I, I, I guess my, my coins are locked with a script that has the ability to validate these proofs such that um, in the worst case that uh, a roll-up, uh, I don't know what you call the the, function, the, the, the people running the roll-up, but if they don't cooperatively give me my coins, that script has the ability for me to sort of have an escape hatch and, and show the proof and because I guess there would be some chain change to full nodes such that they can validate those proofs, then I would be able to get my money out in, in the uncooperative case. Yeah, exactly. Like your ownership, like security over your coins on a roll-up are equal to the ownership security that you have of coins on layer one. So basically, as long as you can get a transaction on layer one confirmed, um, you 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 can get your you can get your bitcoins out the same way that you know as long as you can get a bitcoin confirmed on layer one today you can move bitcoins from your layer one address to some other layer one address so I think you know that's a guarantee that no sidechain design um, that I've ever seen you know provides in in all cases merch. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I, I was wondering. So in a way, it sounds a little more like an extension block because it feels like a compression mechanism. If you still need to uh, track all the state transitions on the main chain, and you also have to be aware of the rules of the side chain in order to validate the um, proof. Uh, so it might actually be a little related to extension blocks. Yeah, that's a that's a good point or question. Um, so the difference with extension blocks is that somebody somebody on layer one has to replay the transactions that happen in, in an extension block, um, whether it's full nodes or miners. At the very least, the miner who like mines the block is replaying those transactions so that they can ensure that those transactions are valid and then, you know, and be sure that full nodes that do recognize the extension block aren't going to reject that block for containing invalid transactions. In the case of a rollup, um, there's there's a separate full node network um, and, and block producer set that is actually checking, you know, they're, they're, they're receiving incoming roll up transactions they're they're executing those transactions against the current state and checking that they follow the the consensus rules and then gathering those transactions into a block and conf and generating the validity proof and putting putting that data on the layer 1 chain so layer 1 full nodes and miners could in theory never replay never need to or or see or uh, like replay those transactions themselves. They just they just see the state data in the block. They verify the validity proof, but they never actually have to like replay those transactions. All of that happens in a separate layer full node network. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what we would need uh, change wise on the main chain side would be the ability to um, evaluate these zk proofs, and we. Other than that, if we got that as a um, new upcode or whatever that is, 
that would be the only effect that we would need on the main clan side. Is that right? Um, not just that. So if you're designing this in a way that is you know, very similar to how Bitcoin works today, so like you're not kind of cheating and like say building an extension block with rules that are totally different than the way that Bitcoin works today in order to support this use case. Um, but like uh, Trade Albanish has proposed using recursive covenants in combination with the validity proofs. Um, and what the recursive covenant gets you is the ability to basically ensure that the UTXO uh, or the script that the users are depositing their Bitcoin into when they want to deposit to the rollup, um, that, that when this, the next state update comes in for the rollup, that the UTXOs stored in that script are always carried forward into the next um, rollup script uh, update. So, you know, with covenants, you're able to restrict um, what kind of uh, script your outputs uh, from your spend transactions are being sent to. <clears throat> um, and this would be used recursively to ensure essentially liveness and like the correct, you know, rollover of state um, whenever there's a, a state update transaction that comes in, um, you know, sequentially block by block as the roll up state progresses. Um, does that does that make sense and answer your question? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so we would need some sort of introspection and we would need um, the ability to evaluate ZK proofs. Uh, but if we then still need to track the state transitions, how much of a compression do we get out of that? Um, so this depends on the implementation details of the rollup that you're building. I gave three different examples of different state models that you could use, which would provide different levels of compression. So if you move to a account-based model, similar to the way that Ethereum works, where users have a single account and their, their account is simply debited whenever you want to send money to an, another account, um, you, could, you could get transactions for simple spend transactions down to like 12 bytes because you would have four bytes that represent the account number of the sender, four bytes that represent the account number of the recipient, like two bytes that would represent the amount and some change for other metadata about the transaction. Um, and, and so that's compared to like, you know, a hundred, 120 to 200 bytes for a similar, like simple spend transaction. Um, so that's like a 10 X, difference but then if you um apply the witness discount to the, uh that data then you're talking about a 12 weight unit transaction compared to a 561 weight unit um main chain one input two output p2 wpkh transaction and you know 12 is goes into 561 um what's the math on that yeah, more than 45 or so. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, so roughly a 45 decrease and actually uh, having it all as a account based. So uh, what they would this uh, roll up basically always spend all of its UTXOs into a single UTXO back. So it would sort of also, um, well, no, the transitions are on chain. It's not really privacy tech, is it? Well, certainly with this account-based model, if anything, you might be losing some privacy because you lose the ambiguity of, of change outputs. Um, but uh, if you want to implement some new uh, you know, privacy protocol like zero cash or uh, um, crypto note or something like that, then you know, that's going to make your transactions bigger. But you still get a some... Uh, scalability benefits in the sense that you're able to uh, uh, leave the witnesses out of the uh, roll-up transaction data that actually gets put on layer one and replace those all of the witnesses of the roll-up block with a single validity proof. And then you just amortize the cost of that validity proof over all of the transactions that you can fit in the roll-up block. Um, and so for um, normal UTXO transactions, what I estimated is that if you did that um, with a 4 million weight unit block, um, you could fit about 26,000 transactions per block for UTXO model one input, two output um, transactions. For the account model transactions, you could fit 250,000 uh, transactions in a block. And if you wanna do something fancy like a zero cash style roll up, then you could fit about 4,500 transactions um, in a block. So, yeah, that that kind of illustrates, I think, the some of the some of the throughput benefits that you can get um, with these different com, you know compression models. Cool, that's very interesting. Uh, Thanks. I, can I ask a question? Please. This might be way too in the weeds, but for, when you say Zcash style, does that include like the proof having? The data being on chain, having to publish like this accumulator kind of spent TXO set stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you uh, that data per transaction is a, like a proof, and then a nullifier. Um, and the nullifier, the nullifier is essentially like the note that, um, uh, or it, it shows you like that a note is um, being spent and removes a note from the unspent. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess my question is, uh, would it, would the contract, so to speak, the cluster of UTXOs in this in this covenant, be getting like larger in witness space? Um, Over time, I mean, as as there's more, you know, of these notes or whatever. I'm just trying to understand how how this would all fit together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, there is a zero cash style rollup that has been built on Ethereum called Aztec. Um, I would have to look at how they're um, how they're doing it, whether they global state. I'm guessing. All right, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so, the, I mean, the, the benefits sound interesting. The tech sounds interesting. Um, what what are we we touched a little bit on? Um, some of the mechanics what like what's what's the downside what what are the unknowns and and what are the trade-offs here that's a good question and the answer again i would say depends on the implementation details 
So if you just had a rollup that worked like Bitcoin, let's say, you know, it, it like the consensus rules were pretty much identical to Bitcoin. And you even designed the soft fork that enables this rollup in such a way that your Bitcoin, like the actual um, byte size of a, a Bitcoin block is on average, no bigger than the biggest blocks that we've seen historically with Bitcoin today. Like I think the record right now is 2.77 megabytes. Then your trade-offs are basically nil. Like you do, you don't have, you don't, you don't lose anything. If anything, you gain in the sense that like if your entire block is a, like full of roll-up transaction data, and all the layer one full nodes have to do is verify a single validity proof, that's going to be cheaper than verifying 2.77 megabytes worth of like today's Bitcoin transactions. So your, your blocks might even become, you get more throughput and your blocks become, your layer one blocks become cheaper to verify. Now, th- you know, that's not the only way that you could build the rollup. You could build the rollup in such a way that you're taking full advantage of the full four million weight units and you apply discount uh, the, the segwit discount or the witness discount to like all of the the rollup transaction data so you're able to get a close to like four megabyte blocks you get that much more throughput but you're also it's also going to take up more bandwidth and more hard disk space because your blocks in bytes are are bigger um you your your blocks still might not uh, get more expensive to verify, and they still actually might be cheaper to verify. But you're you're at least gonna it's gonna cost you um, bandwidth and and hard drive space. Um, and that that's for like a, a Bitcoin style rollup. Now you could also design your soft fork that enables validity rollups in such a way that you support proofs of like more complex statements than simple Bitcoin transactions of, you know, complex smart contract logic or recursive proofs or other things like that, which could enable new types of transactions that you couldn't even do on Bitcoin, such as the zero cash style privacy transactions that we talked about earlier, or, um, like maybe a simplicity, uh, a simplicity blockchain. Uh, so like a, a, a different blockchain that supports the simplicity smart contracting language um, or really any kind of blockchain that you could imagine. Um, you can like turn that dial to make your verification systems simpler or more powerful to like, yeah, gen- um, determine how, uh, complex your validity proofs that you want to be able to support uh, would be, and therefore, like how powerful of a blockchain you want to enable or not. Um, and of course, di- different blockchains with different capabilities could add various, maybe incentive, like new types of incentive models to Bitcoin. If you can enable MEV or like minor extractable value or um, algorithmic incentive manipulation style contracts directly on Bitcoin that could, that could change how minor incentives work today. 
um, which some people are cautious about, uh, right, rightfully so, I would say. Um, so I would say that that's, uh, that's uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that in terms of the costs and trade-offs. I see Merch has his hand up. Go ahead, Merch. Yeah, yeah, I think to be fair, we also have to talk a little bit about the new um, components that we would have to have to evaluate and integrate those, uh, the second layer. So we would need to be able to parse CK proofs, which we currently can't, and uh, that would be a new cryptographic um, uh, primitive that we don't support yet so far. And then for these, depending on what we exactly want to do with the sidechain, we would also need uh, different support for, for the things there, like if we do the ZK, uh, sorry, the Zcash style outputs, we would, of course, be able to parse that. So I think those complexity trade-offs and new cryptographic primitives would also need to be factored into the trade-offs. Well, to, to clarify, layer one would only need to know how to verify the validity proof and to store the transaction data from the roll-up. And then, of course, to have a way of carrying the state of the roll-up forward, which you could do with like recursive covenants. Um, they don't. They don't necessarily. They don't need to say know how to speak simplicity if it's a if it's a simplicity roll up or to really know how to execute those zero cash style transactions if it's a zero cash roll up. All they have to do is is just know how to verify the validity proof that proves the correctness of the roll up block. Thanks for the clarification. Uh, that, that's fair, but uh, I'm just trying to point out how. Uh, there was a huge debate earlier this year already about non-recursive covenants, and um, then uh, this this might be even more of a debate. Is what I'm trying to get at. Oh yeah, no, that's that's also yeah, totally fair. I was I was mainly thinking about the roll-ups, but also talking about yeah, the actual effort and and debate required to get validity proofs in and recursive covenants or whatever else is used to carry whatever else could be used to carry that state forward. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an effort unto itself as well. Thank you. John, uh, what, what, any call to action for, for the listeners here? Do, do you want people to, you know, go through your paper, provide feedback, discuss on the mailing list? Is there something to, to play around with? What can folks do? That's a, uh, yeah. So, I would say all of the above. Um, definitely check out the paper if you hadn't had a chance to read it yet. Um, I I'm totally open to feedback. My DMs are open. Uh, if you want to have a discussion publicly, there's a thread on the mailing list. Um, and there's no software to play with yet uh, for Bitcoin. Um, there have been validity rollups built on other uh, blockchains. Um, if you want to take a look at like how those work, but, um, in terms of any, something on Bitcoin, there's nothing on Bitcoin yet, but I would say if anybody is interested in actually like working on this and maybe making some changes to a fork of Bitcoin on testnet or something like that, or maybe looking at, uh, uh, elements or, you know, some other software like that, where we could experiment with some of these ideas, um, get in touch and maybe we can get like a, a little working group together or something to experiment with these ideas in a, in a Bitcoin context. 
Excellent. Uh, thanks for joining us, John. Um, you're welcome to stay on. Uh, I think that there may be a news item or uh, one of the items later that you can opine on. And you're obviously free to opine on any things we're discussing and, and hang out. But if you got to go, we understand as well. Yeah, thanks. I'll just hang out here. And uh, if anyone has questions later, I don't know if you do audience uh, questions, but I'll, I'll hang out. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Getting back to the newsletter, um, Merch, since you were late today, maybe you can explain the intricacies of the music to security vulnerability for everyone. Gee, thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't think we need to get into that. Uh, honestly, I I don't know. I was very deluded before coffee this morning and after traveling last night, and I actually thought we're starting at 12 and I had two more hours to read, so I got coffee first. And I just got coffee. I didn't read yet. <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess um, I, I only got the cliff notes on this one, but um, my understanding is that in... Uh, actually, do you have it... Then you could. I, I, I don't. It, it almost feels out of scope to to dive into the details of this on on this chat, to be honest. But I do think it would be maybe informative for folks to, if we just gave a quick overview of Musig, um, and maybe I can take a a crack at that, and you can maybe supplement. I mean, Musig, sure. Uh, so Musig is just a protocol with which multiple participants can craft a shared signature together. And the problem with that is that if too much information is known to the counterparty, the counterparty can construct a um, partial signature in a way that it cancels out the other party's key and then basically make the signature uh, in unilaterally after it gets a... Um, it can sort of force the other party into signing over... Uh, the decision to itself. And uh, from what I understand on this security vulnerability that Jonas Nick posted about, uh, it's that if you know the um, public key and the tweak, you can sort of have an, a cancellation attack constructed. And um, usually, hopefully, you would not know the XPUB, and you would also not know the tweak before because people commit to the tweak, I think, with a secret commitment or... Anyway, um, along those lines, there's a new security vulnerability and the spec is being updated to address this. Yeah, and if you're uh, sort of thinking about the, the taxonomy of where Musig fits in, or I guess Musig 2 fits into all this, there's the, the traditional multi-sig using Bitcoin script where you can have sort of a... Uh, five of seven or some sort of arbitrary numbers there of, of signers, then you have multi-signature of which uh, Musig and its ilk are sort of under this multi-signature taxonomy, which is uh, an indistinguishable single signature um, that represents uh, M of M. So all of the signers in, in the, the quorum are signing, and which is different than from threshold signatures in which you have sort of a signal, single signature, um, but you can have a subset of signers. And then, so within multi-signature, you then have uh, the three different music proposals. So there's um, music one, music two, and then music the end. 
and we're talking about Musig 2 and one of the bugs found uh, or potential attack vectors, I guess you should say, in, in Musig 2. Um, so look at the Optech website. There's some topics on Musig and threshold signatures and, and multi-signature to kind of try to put this in, in your brain. Um, and then if you're curious about the details, there's the mailing list post that you can drill into from the newsletter to understand the specific vulnerability. Uh, next item, minimum relayable transaction size, um, which was prompted by a mailing list post from Greg Sanders, uh, who hopefully is still able to hang on with us, even though we're going over our usual hour. Um, still lot. here. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so, so Greg, you, you want to decrease the minimum relayable transaction size, but I, I guess maybe we could start. What, why is there even a minimum relayable tra transaction size in the first place? Right. So a number of years ago, there was a um, standardness restriction that was like – the justification was something like, uh, it's a small transaction. It's probably not real. It's probably spam, and it makes allocations on the heap slower or something like that. But once it was revealed, it was actually a software to not software, a uh, standardness uh, uh, bone suspenders to to avoid a specific um, issue with SPV proofs, where a transaction is exactly 64 bytes in in non-serialized, uh, non-witness serialization, meaning like the way it's serialized a certain way, it's 64 bytes exactly, that it look, it could look like a an inner node in the SPV proof. So there's these Merkle proofs, and basically a, an adversary might be able to trick, you know, make a weird tree where it looks like this is an inner node, but it's actually a transaction, and this could make false proofs. Um, so later this is revealed and people know about it now, but over there was still old code there, old comments, and I was going in there poking and changing it. And in the end, basically the constant size they picked was something like one input and one output to a paid witness public e hash. And there's actually use cases um, that I've, I've heard from a few people to um, that would make it smaller than that. So basically it's, reducing this restriction to 65 bytes and above instead of 85. So this opens up a few use cases. Okay, and, and that 85 was somewhat arbitrarily chosen not to be exactly yeah, 65 as to give away the uh, attack vector? Or? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's going to the smallest one output that's the smallest secure output, right? But there are circumstances where you don't want it to be secure. Like, I want to toss this all the fees for a child place for a parent. And in that case, you weren't allowed to do it without padding, like, an op return with a bunch of bytes. So 65 means I think you'd have to pad four or five bytes. I'll have to look at the, uh, the PR has tests and stuff. But I, Yeah, but... Uh, looking at the 85, I think pay to witness public key hash would have 68 bytes plus uh, 42 witness units for, uh, sorry, wait, wait units for the metadata and then eight bytes for the amount plus one byte for an up return would be something like 87. So it would just be allowed to do, to do an output that is an up return and just gives away all the the money in the output. 
Uh, Greg, I think you alluded to it, but what is it that, that you can do in that 65 to 85 byte range that you so, can't do now that you're trying to do? So actually the optimal would be like 61 bytes. And this would be where, remember this is non-witness serialization. So the, uh, the input could be a pay to witness script hash, pay to witness pub key hash, anything like that. But it doesn't, these witness bytes don't contribute to that size check. And then the output, you could burn it directly to fees. So in Bitcoin consensus, you must have one output. You can't have zero outputs, which is not great, but that's the world we live in. So the optimal thing would be to uh, include a single output, an op return, that then burns all those co- the rest of the coins to fees, right? Uh, let, let's say it's too small for... It's too small for a change output, like you would toss it normally, so you just want to toss it to fees. So how do you do this? Right now, you have to do an op return with like 21 padding bytes or something like that for no reason. So you're, you're scribbling on the blockchain for no reason. Um, and the two options were to make 64 bytes exactly illegal or do or make 64 and below illegal by, by uh, policy. Um, not consensus. So Blue Matt uh, previously had done a software proposal which made 64 and below consensus invalid. So I kind of just picked that number as a thing that's been discussed before, but do it for policy only. Okay, great. Uh, Merch, any questions? Uh, maybe you could mention one of the use cases why you would want to ever create 61 byte transactions. I think that was part of our news items last week already, but just to remind people. You want me to state it? Yeah, so it would be the case where you have, let's say in a lightning transaction of some format where you have an output that's pretty small and you want to do a child's pitch for parent with that or you want to sweep it uh, to do a child pitch for parent, but it's not big enough the value isn't big enough to make another output, right? Today, you'd have to make an uneconomical output, which may not even be related if it's considered dust. So this would this is like a corner case, pretty much, where you're allowed to burn it all the fees. Right. Thanks. All right. Uh, next item on the newsletter was uh, BIP 324 update, um, and that was prompted by a mailing list post from Drew in which he goes over a, a bunch of updates to the BIP proposal for uh, encrypted P2P transport. And there's a bunch of interesting resources to review. There's a, there's a whole website and a guide to the proposed changes. Um, this is pretty cool. Uh, at, at a, a basic overview, I guess the, the TLDR is that um, instead of traffic between peers being completely plain text, um, you'd have the option to uh, encrypt that traffic between yourself and your peers, um, which can can help in a, a few different use cases um, from privacy perspective and tampering. And uh, I, I think it's all, all around a, a net win. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to sit in on Peter Woola and Tim Ruffing's presentation and, and walking through the BIP and there's quite a bit of impressive engineering behind that. Um, Merch, do you have comments on the, the content of BIP 324 as a whole, as well as this specific update that, that Drew is outlining in the mailing list? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, Bit324 um, picks up the idea again to make a new version for the whole protocol uh, communication. And that's an, a fairly old proposal. I think it's uh, it was originally proposed by Jonas Schnelli, I want to say, five to seven years ago. And um, so there's just a few little inefficiencies here and there. And um, actually, even though we encrypt, uh, we, we want to encrypt all the data pushed around on the network in the version two, it would be smaller. It would be an efficiency improvement. Uh, for for bandwidth usage, a very small, slight bandwidth uh, improvement, and um, it generally just makes the cost of being an, a passive attacker and observer on the network more expensive. Because um, when everything is encrypted, you can, um, but not authenticated, you can still listen in on all the traffic, but you have to actually run Bitcoin software in order to parse what's going on. And uh, currently, every ISP and every node that forwards internet traffic would be able to just see exactly that people are uh, posting Bitcoin traffic and what data exactly they're transferring. But with this encrypted layer, instead it would be, um, uh, it would have to be decrypted first in order to be read. Uh, so a passive um, attacker would at least need to do all of that. Yeah, it seems great. Um, I think that's it for our news section this week. Quite a beefy one. It took us <laughs> through an hour and a half, and, and we still got quite a few items in the newsletter. So moving on to claim changes to services and client software. Um, this is a, a monthly segment that we put in the newsletter in which we highlight things that we think are interesting to the Optech audience, that whether that's scaling or other Bitcoin technology related of uh, services or open source software adopting certain technology. Um, the first one here is uh, BTCD, uh, and they had a V23.2 release. I think most of these changes that we outlined in the newsletter are actually in the, the V.23.1 um, release. Um, but includes uh, support for Adder v2, uh, additional support for PSBT, some additional taproot support. I saw some, um, there's some music tooling in there as well, and then a bunch of other enhancements and fixes. So for those not familiar, BTCD is um, another Bitcoin full node implementation separate from Bitcoin Core that um, implements the Bitcoin protocol. Um, I'm not sure exactly of what the- it's, it's a Go implementation, and it's, for example, used by LND. So this is actually the, I think the 23.2, uh, sorry, 0.23.2 release would be the one that fixes the block parsing issue that caused the LND nodes to stall last week. That's right. Uh, the second item is Zebedee announcing a bunch of open source software around hosted channels. And um, we, we link to the blog post for, for more information. Um, but essentially, Zebedee has announced uh, NBD, which is an organization that's furthering open source development. And as part of that announcement, um, they have four different libraries that they've announced. One is a, a wallet called Open Bitcoin Wallet, a core lightning plugin called Poncho, a lightning client, client called Cliché, and a Lightning library, which I think has existed before, but um, Immortan, 
Um, and the, the focus of these libraries are all um, lightning focused and especially around this idea of hosted channels, which has a strong use case in uh, onboarding new users to lightning. Um, so instead of new lightning users having to open up their own channel, there's these hosted channels, which are somewhat trusted, um, but provide a better user experience and are quite popular with lightning wallet software. Merchant any thoughts on hosted channels? Yeah. yeah, I think hosted channels is just a, a sort of subspecies of turbo channels. So um, usually when you open a channel, you have to negotiate with the counterparty and it takes then a few confirmations until the, both counterparties are happy with like the state of the channel being locked in and then forwarding payments on it. Uh, with Turbo Channel, the idea is because you are interacting with a Lightning service provider, the Lightning service provider opens a channel to you, and they trust you with a little bit of credit so that you can immediately receive payments or immediately send payments on the channel. And uh, I think this ties well into the business model of Zebedee, which is focused on um, Lightning-infused gaming so that they can have a smooth experience for new users onboarding. Next item is Cashew. Cashew launches with uh, Lightning support. So uh, I think we covered actually Fediment, which is another eCash software um, in a previous newsletter. Um, and so Cashew is in that realm, although not necessarily exactly this, the same type of software, and it's launching as a proof, proof of concept wallet. And right now they have the ability to receive via Lightning, although um, last I checked, there there's not the ability to uh, send out of that. So this is still very um, you know, beta type software um, uh, playing around with proof of concept. So it looked pretty cool. I thought it was worth surfacing to, to the community. Yeah, from what I gather, they're mostly pushing around tens of Satoshis right now. But the really fun thing about this is um, this makes use of a concept called Chamian eCash, which we talked about in the context of Fediment already. And Chamian eCash is, um, well, was introduced by David Chom, I think, in the 80s. And there was a business built around that in the early 90s. Uh, Diggy Cash, and the the idea is basically, I um, give people tokens that they can spend for a specific amount of eCash, and um, I can then tell as the service provider whether that token has been spent before, but I cannot distinguish uh, the tokens by themselves. So I they're all single use, but I don't know who is using the money. So the users of the eCash system, they basically just uh, hand over the token to another recipient, sort of like cash, peer-to-peer. -peer. And then they, the new recipient um, phones into the central server and says, hey, I would like to reissue this token in a new uh, proof. And then the uh, service provider says, oh, sure, here's a new proof for the same amount, and the old one is burnt. So now the recipient at that point has uh, unilateral control over the money, and they, they can then in turn give it to somebody else. But 
the server pro service provider guarantees sort of that there is no additional cash produced, uh, so the the token amount uh, is not inflatable. Uh, at least uh, from, I mean, the central party can give out more, but the the users cannot create more money, uh, and it is extremely private from the user side. The big downside of the system is that you have to fully trust the counterparty, the central service provider, with keeping the amount of money fixed. So uh, we, we talked about Fediment in this context where the central party is a federation and you would basically only need to, to trust some of the federated members that they are not uh, colluding against you. And Cashew is, I think, more of a, uh, um, more centralized, but uh, compared to, it, it might take the place of something like Coinbase, where Coinbase wants to allow you to pay user to user without learning who is paying whom. Uh, well, okay, maybe in the case of Coinbase, that is not actually what they want, but you could do something like Coinbase without collecting the usage patterns of your users. So, yeah, it sounds fun. I think it's still uh, very experimental, and I don't know how deeply it's been vetted by, by um, other parties, but just for playing around, it sounds pretty fun, and... Uh, yeah, keep it to the tens of Satoshis for the moment, maybe. Cool. Uh, next. Actually, we have the author here, too, if I see that right. So, yeah. uh, Kalle, if you have a moment and want yeah, to I, talk about it, too. I, oh, invited, you've I invited Kalle, but... Um, well, okay, we'll see. Nothing yet. Okay. Uh, next one on our list of client service updates is a new address explorer, Spiral. Spiral not affiliated with Block or any of the. Oh, hey, Kelly. Hi. Can. Yeah, we can. Uh, I'm cooking right now, so I hope that the noise in the background doesn't disturb you. But thanks for mentioning Cashew. I just wanted to add um, sending out funds via Lightning has been working for a couple of weeks already. So, in the first, uh, very first version, you could only receive funds. There was, I mean, obviously kind of a joke um, because it's a one way street, but sending out Payments via Lightning has been working so far. And just to add on that very quickly, the medium term goal of cash is to become kind of like a library that you can include into your custodial services yourself. As Merch said before, the idea is kind of to, to, um, to make existing custodians or maybe new custodians in the future adopt Charmin eCash instead of ledger based, fully transparent systems. That's a that's a worthy goal. I hope I hope someone some of these entities take you up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for jumping in. Um, so yeah, I, w I was saying about Spiral, the address explorer is not affiliated with Block or um, that organization. It just happens to have the same name. Um, so typically, if you're going to let's say Blockstream.info or the uh, mempool. Um, transaction explorer, address explorer, um, you, you know, there's some information that you're giving up when you're making a request and you're making queries of them. And Spiral is an open source address explorer that lets you put in an address and it, it's using some cryptography to provide um, privacy to the end user who's looking up that address information. Um, so there's some cool cryptography, cryptography there. It's not a full 
block explorer um, as as we're used to, but it it, it is um, a private way to look up address information. Did you check that out at all, Merch? I have not yet really, but uh, it sounds pretty fun because one of the problems that we have with block explorers currently is uh, some of them are actually run by uh, chain analysis and uh, other companies like that. So when you put in your requests to look up information, they probably remember what IP address made that request and things like that. And uh, if you use it a lot, you might have a bit of a footprint there that they associate with your IP address. So being able to look something up without revealing to the service what you looked up sounds like a pretty interesting goal. I'm curious, though, how they... Uh, would prove that to you because you're still just looking at a website and if they run the website in the background, how do you know that they are running the code that they claim to run? But it sounds definitely very interesting. Uh, Next item here is Bico announces lightning support. So there's a blog post here in which Bico goes through the, the features that they're providing. Um, their custodial clients. This is custodial lightning solution. So Bitco's running the nodes. Bitco, Bitco is maintaining the liquidity of the channels. And so it's convenient in that regard, but it's it's definitely custodial. Um, Merchant, any comments from your alma mater here? Well, um, so Bitco is a custodian already. So if you have custody already, isn't it kind of neat if you can just make lightning payments and they account for it on their end and um, you basically get access uh, to lightning through the same interface you're already integrated with and you can spend whatever money you have in custody. That seems uh, like a pretty big benefit to me. And um, I I could see, given that BitGo has some hundreds of exchanges as their customers, that it might pave the way for some simple lightning integrations for exchanges and uh, things like that. And uh, if a lot of services take them up on that offer, it would have a lot of liquidity. Maybe it would be really useful for arbitrage and things like that. Yeah, it's always good to see lightning adoption. Uh, last item here on the client service updates is uh, zero sync project launching. And I didn't get a chance to, to try this myself, but uh, the zero sync project is working to use UTXO and Stark proofs to sync a Bitcoin node, um, similar to what you might do when you're doing initial block download. Um, so uh, I, I didn't see any uh, figures about how fast this is or could be but this could drastically speed up uh, the IBD process if um, you're willing to trust these technologies. Um, I, like I said, I haven't tried it. I, I don't know um, if there's any benchmark metrics out. I hadn't seen any, um, but it seemed like a, 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 an interesting effort. I'm not super familiar with this approach exactly, but um, the... IBD is definitely one of the most harrowing parts of the user experience. You just download Bitcoin and you want to start uh, using the wallet that is packaged and then wait. I have to wait like eight hours for the uh, node to sync up with the blockchain. That sucks. And by the time the person uh, just finishes up, they, they either have downloaded another wallet already or maybe moved on and lost interest. So having a way of 
quickly um, getting some state update and um, maybe having SPV-like assurances in your Bitcoin Core wallet early on, and then in the background syncing in full or even having a um, zero-knowledge proof that you have synced correctly could enable us to really quickly onboard people and then perhaps also allow us to make much bigger blocks eventually if we... Um, if we don't have to have everybody download and process all of them in advance. So one of the goals I think that um, uh, is packaged with UTXO is instead of everybody keeping the whole state of the UTXO set, every user would just keep proofs for their own UTXOs and when they want to spend them, prove that they exist and haven't been spent. And of course, if everybody only needs to keep track of their own money and then be able to prove that the money exists, that would introduce some scalability benefits potentially. Moving on to releases and release candidates. Uh, the big one here is uh, Bitcoin Core 24.0 release candidate number two is out. Um, since we last spoke, we've been shilling folks to jump into the testing guide to test release candidate one. And if you've done that and you've found some enjoyment there, maybe you want to jump in and, and also attempt to do some testing on release candidate two. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we're sort of scheduled for release candidate three already. I heard about another bug being found. And um, with the mempool full RBF discussion ongoing, I'm getting the impression that people are... Um, starting to consider whether or not something needs to be patched there. But uh, we do need more testing, obviously, because we still found another bug. So uh, please do play around. Try fancy stuff. Try all the things that you are interested in and want to work. Um, yeah, And let us know if you find anything suspicious. Um, the, the LND release is just a minor release with some bug fixes that I don't think is worth getting into now, especially at the 90-minute mark. Um, in terms of notable code and documentation changes, there's a couple of Bitcoin Core PRs that have been merged. There's 23.549, which is adding scan blocks RPC that identifies relevant blocks in a given range for a set of descriptors. Uh, and that RPC is only available if you enable compact block filtering with the compact block filter index flag. So this one's interesting because um, if you're running a pruning node, you actually throw away blockchain data that you've already processed. Mm -hmm. And if you then add a descriptor, especially import an old descriptor that uh, is, has a birth date that uh, precedes the latest block that you still keep, you actually would have to, in the current pandemic, completely rescan the blockchain, which means completely re-downloading and reprocessing the blockchain on a prune node. And uh, compact block filters have been around for a while now. I think uh, two releases that it's been formally enabled on Bitcoin Core. And um, so if other nodes keep these compact blocks or you... Um, have indirectly access to one of those nodes, you can just say, hey, with this descriptors, can, can I scan the compact blocks and see whether any of those older, no uh, older blocks are, have data relevant to my node? 
and then instead of parsing the whole blockchain, just download the nodes that contain interesting data to you. So you would find your own transactions and your own UTXOs again without processing the whole blockchain, but just the whole chain of compact blocks in the range. Yeah, super useful as, as somebody who's been the victim of having to do the, the rescan before. It seems like a great usability improvement there. Um, Bitcoin Core 25.412 adds a new slash deployment info REST endpoint, and um, that contains information about soft fork deployments. And it's basically just the same thing as the get deployment info uh, RPC. So there's just a REST endpoint for that. Nothing too exciting there. Um, LND 69.56. Um, this is this harkens back to some of our previous discussions and other newsletters about this notion of the minimum channel reserve. Um, and so there, I think it was maybe Core Lightning last that we covered uh, the channel reserve. Um, Merch, do you want to explain why we have a channel reserve and the, the 1%? Sure. So in the update mechanism that uh, Bitcoin, uh, the Lightning Network uses, um, we need to have the counterparty keep a minimum of money so that we have something to punish them with. We use the mode Ellen penalty. And what it does is we ensure that each of us will only ever use the latest state of the channel when they broadcast to unilaterally close the channel, uh, because otherwise we're going to be able to take all of their money from uh, any false state that they broadcast. And uh, with this reduce, reduction of the minimum channel balance, you can allow the counterparty to completely empty their side. So, for example, if you are a lightning service provider and your client is a a mobile wallet and they want to close their account, you might want to be uh, allow them to completely spend their Lightning balance on the um, Lightning Network instead of closing it out as a channel closure. And uh, that's what you can do with this new change. Not recommended to make set that to zero if you're not sure what you're doing or who your channel partner is. Um, LND 7004. Uh, this is essentially the update to LND, LND that we talked about before that changes the ver version of the BTC library used by LND and thus fixing the vulnerability that we discussed earlier in the newsletter and last year as well, or last, last week as well. And our last item for today is LDK1625. And this is a change to the Lightning Development Kit that um, adds the ability to track liquidity of uh, distant channels. And the purpose of that is if you can keep track of um, sort of some size of payments that have either been routed through, which have failed or succeeded due to insufficient funds, you can use that information as an input for pathfinding in the future. So it's, it's a, an additional data collection mechanism to facilitate better pathfinding. Any comments there, Merch? Mm, I mean, maybe we can say a couple things here. Yes, um, sure. one is, of course, if you if you want to make a payment for a sizable amount and you've already tried channels before and they've uh, basically told you they can't route that much, uh, keeping track of that information and not trying that channel again um, soon after is, of course, a 
benefit because then you will have more success in routing attempts because you you avoid routes that are highly unlikely to be able to facilitate your payment. Um, on the other hand, there's also sort of um, we we have now multiple different approaches on how we facilitate routing. There is uh, uh, the picket payments, which sort of probabilistically model uh, where the balance in each channel is uh, probably going to be, and try to find a path that that has a high probability of having sufficient funds. Uh, there is uh, some approaches that only model. Uh, the, the fees and try to find the route with the lowest fees to forward the payment. And this seems like a, a third approach now where you actually just try to learn from experience what worked and didn't work in the past and then uh, inform your, your attempts that way.